Section 33 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean McElhenney. ReadingItself.com. Section 33. Theodore Roosevelt, December 8, 1908, Part 3. Forests. If there is any one duty which more than another we owe it to our children and our children's children to perform at once, it is to save the forests of this country, for they constitute the first and most important element in the conservation of the natural resources of the country. There are, of course, two kinds of natural resources. One is the kind which can only be used as part of a process of exhaustion. This is true of mines, natural oil and gas wells, and the like. The other, and of course ultimately by far the most important, includes the resources which can be improved in the process of wise use. The soil, the rivers, and the forests come under this head. Any really civilized nation will so use all of these great national assets that the nation will have their benefit in the future. Just as a farmer, after all his life making his living from his farm, will, if he is an expert farmer, leave it as an asset of increased value to his son, so we should leave our national domain to our children, increased in value and not worn out. There are small sections of our own country, in the east and the west, in the Adirondacks, the White Mountains and the Appalachians, and in the Rocky Mountains, where we can already see for ourselves the damage in the shape of permanent injury to the soil and the river systems, which comes from reckless deforestation. It matters not whether this deforestation is due to the actual reckless cutting of timber, to the fires that inevitably follow such reckless cutting of timber, or to reckless and uncontrolled grazing, especially by the great migratory bands of sheep, the unchecked wandering of which over the country means destruction to forests and disaster to the small homemakers, the settlers of limited means. Short-sighted persons or persons blinded to the future by desire to make money in every way out of the present sometimes speak as if no great damage would be done by the reckless destruction of our forests. It is difficult to have patience with the arguments of these persons. Thanks to our own recklessness in the use of our splendid forests, we have already crossed the verge of a timber famine in this country, and no measures that we now take can, at least for many years, undo the mischief that has already been done. But we can prevent further mischief being done, and it would be in the highest degree reprehensible to let any consideration of temporary convenience or temporary cost interfere with such action, especially as regards the national forests, which the nation can now at this very moment control. All serious students of the question are aware of the great damage that has been done in the Mediterranean countries of Europe, Asia and Africa by deforestation. The similar damage that has been done in Eastern Asia is less well known. A recent investigation into conditions in North China by Mr. Frank N. Meyer 
of the Bureau of Plant Industry of the United States Department of Agriculture has incidentally furnished in very striking fashion proof of the ruin that comes from reckless deforestation of mountains and of the further fact that the damage once done may prove practically irreparable. So important are these investigations that I herewith attach as an appendix to my message certain photographs showing present conditions in China. They show in vivid fashion the appalling desolation taking the shape of barren mountains and gravel and sand-covered plains, which immediately follows and depends upon the deforestation of the mountains. Not many centuries ago, the country of northern China was one of the most fertile and beautiful spots in the entire world and was heavily forested. We know this not only from the old Chinese records, but from the accounts given by the traveler Marco Polo. He, for instance, mentions that in visiting the provinces of Shansai and Shensai, he observed many plantations of mulberry trees. Now there is hardly a single mulberry tree in either of these provinces, and the culture of the silkworm has moved farther south to regions of atmospheric moisture. As an illustration of the complete change in the rivers, we may take Polo's statement that a certain river, the Hunho, was so large and deep that merchants ascended it from the sea with heavily laden boats. Today, this river is simply a broad, sandy bed, with shallow, rapid currents wandering hither and thither across it, absolutely unnavigable. But we do not have to depend upon written records. The dry wells and the wells with water far below the former watermark bear testimony to the good days of the past and the evil days of the present. Wherever the native vegetation has been allowed to remain, as, for instance, here and there around a sacred temple or imperial burying ground, there are still huge trees and tangled jungle, fragments of the glorious ancient forests. The thick, matted forest growth formerly covered the mountains to their summits. All natural factors favored the dense forest growth and as long as it was permitted to exist, the plains at the foot of the mountains were among the most fertile on the globe, and the whole country was a garden. Not the slightest effort was made, however, to prevent the unchecked cutting of the trees or to secure reforestation. Doubtless for many centuries, the tree cutting by the inhabitants of the mountains worked but slowly in bringing about the changes that have now come to pass. Doubtless for generations, the inroads were scarcely noticeable. But there came a time when the forest had shrunk sufficiently to make each year's cutting a serious matter. And from that time on, the destruction proceeded with appalling rapidity, for, of course, each year of destruction rendered the forest less able to recuperate, less able to resist next year's inroad. Mr. Meyer describes the ceaseless progress of the destruction even now, when there is so little left to destroy. Every morning, men and boys go out armed with mattocks or axe, scale the steepest mountainsides, and cut down and grub out root and branch the small trees and shrubs still to to be found. The big trees disappeared centuries ago, so that now one of these is never seen save in the neighborhood of temples, where they are artificially protected. And even here, it takes all the watch and care of the tree-loving priests to prevent their destruction. Each family, 
Each community where there is no common care exercised in the interest of all of them to prevent deforestation finds its profit in the immediate use of the fuel which would otherwise be used by some other family or some other community. In the total absence of regulation of the matter in the interest of the whole people, each small group is inevitably pushed into a policy of destruction which cannot afford to take thought for the morrow. This is just one of those matters which it is fatal to leave to unsupervised individual control. The forest can only be protected by the state, by the nation, and the liberty of action of individuals must be conditioned upon what the state or nation determines to be necessary for the common safety. The lesson of deforestation in China is a lesson which mankind should have learned many times already from what has occurred in other places. Denudation leaves naked soil. Then gullying cuts down to the bare rock, and meanwhile the rock waste buries the bottomlands. When the soil is gone, men must go, and the process does not take long. The ruthless destruction of the forests in northern China has brought about or has aided in bringing about a desolation, just as the destruction of the forests in Central Asia aid in bringing ruin to the once rich Central Asian cities, just as the destruction of the forest in northern Africa helped towards the ruin of a region that was a fertile granary in Roman days. Short-sighted man, whether barbaric semi-civilized or what he mistakenly regards as fully civilized when he has destroyed the forests has rendered certain the ultimate destruction of the land itself in northern china the mountains are now such as are shown by the accompanying photographs absolutely barren peaks not only have the forests been destroyed but because of their destruction the soil has been washed off the naked rock the terrible consequence is that it is impossible now to undo the damage that has been done. Many centuries would have to pass before soil would again collect, or could be made to collect, in sufficient quantity once more to support the old-time forest growth. In consequence, the Mongol desert is practically extending eastward over northern China. The climate has changed and is still changing. It has changed even within the last half century, as the work of tree destruction has been consummated. The great masses of arboreal vegetation on the mountains formerly absorbed the heat of the sun and sent up currents of cool air, which brought the moisture-laden clouds lower and forced them to precipitate in rain a part of their burden of water. Now that there is no vegetation, the barren mountains, scorched by the sun, send up currents of heated air which drive away instead of attracting the rain clouds and cause their moisture to be disseminated. In consequence, instead of the regular and plentiful rains which existed in these regions of China when the forests were still in evidence, the unfortunate inhabitants of the deforested lands now see their crops wither for lack of rainfall, while the seasons grow more and more irregular, and as the air becomes drier, certain crops refuse longer to grow at all. That everything dries out faster than formerly is shown by the fact that the level of the wells all over the land has sunk perceptively, many of them having become totally dry. In addition to the resulting agricultural distress, the watercourses have changed. Formerly, they were narrow and deep 
with an abundance of clear water the year round, for the roots and humus of the forests caught the rainwater and let it escape by slow, regular seepage. They have now become broad, shallow stream beds in which muddy water trickles in slender currents during the dry seasons, while when it rains there are freshets and roaring muddy torrents come tearing down, bringing disaster and destruction everywhere. Moreover, these floods and freshets, which diversify the general dryness, wash away from the mountainsides and either wash away or cover in the valleys the rich fertile soil which it took tens of thousands of years for nature to form and it is lost forever and until the forests grow again it cannot be replaced the sand and stones from the mountainsides are washed loose and come rolling down to cover the arable lands and in consequence throughout this part of china many formerly rich districts are now sandy wastes useless for human cultivation and even for pasture the cities have been of course seriously affected for the streams have gradually ceased to be navigable there is testimony that even within the memory of men now living there has been a serious diminution of the rainfall of northeastern china the level of the Sungari River in northern Manchuria has been sensibly lowered during the last 50 years, at least partly as the result of the indiscriminate rutting of the forests forming its watershed. Almost all the rivers of northern China have become uncontrollable and very dangerous to the dwellers along their banks as a direct result of the destruction of the forests. The journey from Pekin to Jehol shows in melancholy fashion how the soil has been washed away from whole valleys so that they have been converted into deserts. In northern China, this disastrous process has gone on so long and has proceeded so far that no complete remedy could be applied. There are certain mountains in China from which the soil is gone so utterly that only the slow action of the ages could again restore it, although, of course, much could be done to prevent the still further eastward extension of the Mongolian desert if the Chinese government would act at once. The accompanying cuts from photographs show the inconceivable desolation of the barren mountains in which certain of these rivers rise, mountains, be it remembered, which formerly supported dense forests of larches and firs, now unable to produce any wood, and because of their condition, a source of danger to the whole country. The photographs also show the same rivers after they have passed through the mountains, the beds having become broad and sandy because of the deforestation of the mountains. One of the photographs shows a caravan passing through a valley. Formerly, when the mountains were forested, it was thickly peopled by prosperous peasants. Now the floods have carried the destruction all over the land, and the valley is a stony desert. Another photograph shows a mountain road covered with the stones and rocks that are brought down in the rainy season from the mountains, which have already been deforested by human hands. Another shows a pebbly riverbed in southern Manchuria, where what was once a great stream has dried up owing to the deforestation in the mountains. Only some scrub wood is left, which will disappear within a half century. Yet another shows the effect of one of the washouts, destroying an arable mountainside. These washouts being due to the removal of all vegetation. Yet in this photograph, the foreground shows that reforestation is still a possibility in places. 
What has thus happened in northern China? What has happened in Central Asia, in Palestine, in North Africa, in parts of the Mediterranean countries of Europe will surely happen in our country if we do not exercise that wise forethought which should be one of the chief marks of any people calling itself civilized. Nothing should be permitted to stand in the way of the preservation of the forests. And it is criminal to permit individuals to purchase a little gain for themselves through the destruction of forests when the destruction is fatal to the well-being of the whole country in the future. Inland Waterways Action should be begun forthwith during the present session of the Congress for the improvement of our inland waterways, action which will result in giving us not only navigable but navigated rivers. We have spent hundreds of millions of dollars upon these waterways, yet the traffic on nearly all of them is steadily declining. This condition is the direct result of the absence of any comprehensive and far-seeing plan of waterway improvement. Obviously, we cannot continue thus to expend the revenues of the government without return. It is poor business to spend money for inland navigation unless we get it. Inquiry into the condition of the Mississippi and its principal tributaries reveals very many instances of the utter waste caused by the methods which have hitherto obtained for the so-called improvement of navigation. A striking instance is supplied by the improvement of the Ohio, which begun in 1824, was continued under a single plan for half a century. In 1875, a new plan was adopted and followed for a quarter of a century. In 1902, still a different plan was adopted and has since been pursued at a rate which only promises a navigable river in from 20 to 100 years longer. Such short-sighted, vacillating, and futile methods are accompanied by decreasing waterborne commerce and increasing traffic congestion on land by increasing floods and by the waste of public money. The remedy lies in abandoning the methods which have so signally failed and adopting new ones in keeping with the needs and demands of our people. In a report on a measure introduced at the first session of the present Congress, the Secretary of War said, The chief defect in the methods hitherto pursued lies in the absence of executive authority for originating comprehensive plans covering the country or natural divisions thereof. In this opinion, I heartily concur. The present methods not only fail to give us inland navigation, but they are injurious to the Army as well. What is virtually a permanent detail of the Corps of Engineers to civilian duty necessarily impairs the efficiency of our military establishment. The military engineers have undoubtedly done efficient work in actual construction, but they are necessarily unsuited by their training and traditions to take the broad view and to gather and transmit to Congress the commercial and industrial information and forecasts upon which waterway improvement must always so largely rest. Furthermore, they have failed to grasp the great underlying fact that every stream is a unit from its source to its mouth and that all its uses are interdependent. Prominent officers of the Engineer Corps have recently even gone so far as to assert in print that waterways are not dependent upon the conservation of the forests about their headwaters. This position is opposed to all the recent work of the scientific bureaus of the government and to the general experience of mankind. A physician who disbelieved in vaccination 
would not be the right man to handle an epidemic of smallpox, nor should we leave a doctor skeptical about the transmission of yellow fever by the Stegomaya mosquito in charge of sanitation at Havana or Panama. So, with the improvement of our rivers, it is no longer wise or safe to leave this great work in the hands of men who fail to grasp the essential relations between navigation and general development and to assimilate and use the central facts about our streams. Until the work of river improvement is undertaken in a modern way, it cannot have results that will meet the needs of this modern nation. These needs should be met without further dilly-dallying or delay. The plan which promises the best and quickest results is that of a permanent commission authorized to coordinate the work of all the government departments relating to waterways and to frame and supervise the execution of a comprehensive plan. Under such a commission, the actual work of construction might be entrusted to the Reclamation Service or to the military engineers acting with a sufficient number of civilians to continue the work in time of war, or it might be divided between the Reclamation Service and the Corps of Engineers. Funds should be provided from current revenues if it is deemed wise, otherwise from the sale of bonds. The essential thing is that the work should go forward under the best possible plan and with the least possible delay. We should have a new type of work and a new organization for planning and directing it. The time for playing with our waterways is past. The country demands results. National Parks I urge that all our national parks adjacent to national forests be placed completely under the control of the Forest Service of the Agricultural Department instead of leaving them as they now are under the Interior Department and policed by the Army. The Congress should provide for superintendents with adequate corps of first-class civilian scouts or rangers and further place the road construction under the superintendent instead of leaving it with the War Department. Such a change in park management would result in economy and avoid the difficulties of administration which now arise from having the responsibility of care and protection divided between different departments. The need for this course is peculiarly great in the Yellowstone Park. This, like the Yosemite, is a great wonderland and should be kept as a national playground. In both, all wild things should be protected and the scenery kept wholly unmarred. I am happy to say that I have been able to set aside in various parts of the country small, well-chosen tracts of ground to serve as sanctuaries and nurseries for wild creatures. Denatured Alcohol I had occasion in my message of May 4, 1906, to urge the passage of some law putting alcohol used in the arts, industries, and manufactures upon the free list, that is, to provide for the withdrawal free of tax of alcohol, which is to be denatured for those purposes. The law of June 7, 1906, and its amendment of March 2, 1907, accomplished what was desired in that respect, and the use of denatured alcohol as intended, is making a fair degree of progress and is entitled to further encouragement and support from the Congress. Pure Food The pure food legislation has already worked a benefit difficult to overestimate. Indian Service 
It has been my purpose from the beginning of my administration to take the Indian service completely out of the atmosphere of political activity, and there has been steady progress toward that end. The last remaining stronghold of politics in that service was the agency system, which had seen its best days and was gradually falling to pieces from natural or purely evolutionary causes, but, like all such survivals, was decaying slowly in its later stages. It seems clear that its extinction had better be made final now so that the ground can be cleared for larger constructive work on behalf of the Indians, preparatory to their induction into the full measure of responsible citizenship. On November 1st, only 18 agencies were left on the roster, with two exceptions, where some legal questions seem to stand temporarily in the way. These have been changed to superintendencies and their heads brought into the classified civil service. Secret Service. Last year, an amendment was incorporated in the measure providing for the Secret Service, which provided that there should be no detail from the Secret Service and no transfer therefrom. It is not too much to say that this amendment has been of benefit only and could be of benefit only to the criminal classes. If deliberately introduced for the purpose of diminishing the effectiveness of war against crime, it could not have been better devised to this end. It forbade the practices that had been followed to a greater or lesser extent by the executive heads of various departments for 20 years. To these practices, we owe the securing of the evidence, which enabled us to drive great lotteries out of business and secure a quarter of a million dollars in fines from their promoters. These practices have enabled us to get some of the evidence indispensable in order in connection with the theft of government land and government timber by great corporations and by individuals. These practices have enabled us to get some of the evidence indispensable in order to secure the conviction of the wealthiest and most formidable criminals with whom the government has to deal, both those operating in violation of the antitrust laws and others. The amendment in question was of benefit to no one excepting to these criminals, and it seriously hampers the government in the detection of crime and the securing of justice. Moreover, it not only affects departments outside of the Treasury, but it tends to hamper the Secretary of the Treasury himself in the effort to utilize the employees of his department so as to best meet the requirements of the public service. It forbids him from preventing frauds upon the Customs Service, from investigating irregularities in branch mints and assay offices, and has seriously crippled him. It prevents the promotion of employees in the Secret Service, and this further discourages good effort. In its present form, the restriction operates only to the advantage of the criminal, of the wrongdoer. The chief argument in favor of the provision was that the congressmen did not themselves wish to be investigated by Secret Service men. Very little of such investigation has been done in the past, but it is true that the work of the Secret Service agents was partly responsible for the indictment and conviction of a senator and a congressman for land frauds in Oregon. I do not believe that it is in the public interest to protect criminality in any branch of the public service, and exactly as we have again and again during the past seven years prosecuted and convicted such criminals who were in the executive branch of government, so in my belief we should be given ample means to prosecute them if found in the legislative branch. But if this is not considered desirable, a special exception could be made in the law 
prohibiting the use of the Secret Service force in investigating members of the Congress. It would be far better to do this than to do what actually was done and strive to prevent or at least to hamper effective action against criminals by the executive branch of the government. Postal Savings Banks I again renew my recommendation for postal savings banks, for depositing savings with the security of the government behind them. The object is to encourage thrift and economy in the wage earner and person of moderate means. In 14 states, the deposits in savings banks, as reported to the Comptroller of the Currency, amount to $3,590,245,402, or 98.4% of the entire deposits, while in the remaining 32 states, there are only $70,308,543, or 1.6%, showing conclusively that there are many localities in the United States where sufficient opportunity is not given to the people to deposit their savings. The result is that money is kept in hiding and unemployed. It is believed that in the aggregate, vast sums of money would be brought into circulation through the instrumentality of the postal savings banks. While there are only 1,453 savings banks reporting to the Comptroller, there are more than 61,000 post offices, 40,000 of which are money order offices. Postal savings banks are now in operation in practically all of the great civilized countries, with the exception of the United States. Parcel Post. In my last annual message, I commended the Postmaster General's recommendation for an extension of the parcel post on the rural routes. The establishment of a local parcel post on rural routes would be to the mutual benefit of the farmer and the country storekeeper, and it is desirable that the routes, serving more than 15 million people, should be utilized to the fullest practicable extent. An amendment was proposed in the Senate at the last session at the suggestion of the Postmaster General providing that, for the purpose of ascertaining the practicability of establishing a special local parcel post system on the rural routes throughout the United States, the Postmaster General be authorized and directed to experiment and report to the Congress the result of such experiment by establishing a special local parcel post system on rural delivery routes in not to exceed four counties in the United States for packages of fourth-class matter originating on a rural route or or at the distributing post office for delivery by rural carriers. It would seem only proper that such an experiment should be tried in order to demonstrate the practicability of the proposition, especially as the Postmaster General estimates that the revenue derived from the operation of such a system on all the rural routes would amount to many million dollars. Education. The share that the national government should take in the broad work of education has not received the attention and the care it rightly deserves. The immediate responsibility for the support and improvement of our educational systems and institutions rests and should always rest with the people of the several states acting through their state and local governments. But the nation has an opportunity in educational work which must not be lost and a duty which should no longer be neglected. The National Bureau of Education was established more than 40 years ago. Its purpose is to collect and diffuse such information as shall aid the people of the United States in the establishment and maintenance of efficient school systems and otherwise promote the cause of education throughout the country. 
This purpose in no way conflicts with the educational work of the states, but may be made of great advantage to the states by giving them the fullest, most accurate, and hence the most helpful information and suggestion regarding the best educational systems. The nation, through its broader field of activities, its wider opportunity for obtaining information from all the states and from foreign countries, is able to do that which not even the richest states can do, and with the distinct additional advantage that the information thus obtained is used for the immediate benefit of all our people. With the limited means hitherto provided, the Bureau of Education has rendered efficient service, but the Congress has neglected to adequately supply the Bureau with means to meet the educational growth of the country. The appropriations for the general work of the Bureau outside education in Alaska for the year 1909 are but $87,500, an amount less than they were 10 years ago. And some of the important items in these appropriations are less than they were 30 years ago. It is an inexcusable waste of public money to appropriate an amount which is so inadequate as to make it impossible properly to do the work authorized. And it is unfair to the great educational interests of the country to deprive them of the value of the results which can be obtained by proper appropriations. I earnestly recommend that this unfortunate state of affairs as regards the National Educational Office be remedied by adequate appropriations. This recommendation is urged by the representatives of our common schools and great state universities and the leading educators who all unite in requesting favorable consideration and action by the Congress upon this subject. Census. I strongly urge that the request of the director of the census in connection with the decennial work so soon to be begun be complied with and that the appointments to the census force be placed under the civil service law, waiving the geographical requirements as requested by the director of the census. The supervisors and enumerators should not be appointed under the civil service law for the reasons given by the director. I commend to the Congress the careful consideration of the admirable report of the director of the census, and I trust that his recommendations will be adopted and immediate action thereon taken. End of section 33. Recording by Sean McElhenney. Readingitself.com.